This Week in HPC by Intersect 360 Research. Scaling beyond EXA. And Intel goes 3D. It's This Week in HPC. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of This Week in HPC with Intersect 360 Research, distributed in partnership with Top500.org. I'm Addison Snell. That's Michael Feldman. Michael, we're back this week in HPC. We we missed last week in HPC because I was traveling. I was in South Africa for the CHPC National Conference in Cape Town, which was a, a, a really interesting talk there. And uh, but we're back this week and catching up on the news, which we have some of to round out the year. Yeah, and it sounds like some of the news that you you caught in Cape Town or some of the presentations at least relate to to at least some of the topics we're going to talk about today. You know, that's always a good conference, and uh, I really like what uh, Happy Satole has done to build the presence of HPC in Africa. But you're right, and I thought the most interesting presentation, although we're not going to have time to recap everything but the the very ending keynote the closing keynote was delivered by Thomas Sterling a well-known HPC luminary from Indiana University and he gave a talk on the potential for a new type of architecture he called continuum computer architecture which really was to take supercomputing into a post von Neumann space. It is not a von Neumann architecture. He's taken a lot of the the rules of how you build a computer and reimagined them down at the fundamental level, turning it on its ear. And his premise was that the the technologies we have now can get us to exascale, but really only just, and they don't get us a lot past 1.0 exaflops. And in order to look to multiple exaflops and eventually zettaflops and maybe even yottaflops, we needed to do something different. And he sketched that out um, with this new architecture. And the real bombshell was that uh, he's now formed a company that proposes to do just that called Simultac, S-I-M-U-L-T-A-C, uh, Simultac and, uh, and this Simultac Fonton architecture. Well, that that is interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I can't remember the last time uh, Thomas was even associated with the company, but obviously he thinks enough of what he's done here to sort of uh, put this together. That's something certainly to follow up on. I, I know they didn't give a whole lot of detail, or he didn't give a whole lot of detail on on what that entailed. But certainly, when you have a guy like Sterling talking about such things, it's it has to be taken seriously. And it's interesting in in the fact that yeah, that does dovetail into some of the news that uh, I covered here on Top 500 News this week. Right. The The interesting thing was, yeah, there is a white paper up online, and he, he gave charts. He said that this can build an exascale machine, exascale in the in roughly in the 2023 timeline, wow. which isn't that, that long out. But then beyond that, he showed here's how you would build a zetascale machine, and he even had charts out to 0.6 yada flops wow. not quite all the way to a yada flop yet but but yeah you're you're meanwhile independent from that you have an, a feature article on top500.org that that talks about essentially this existential crisis in supercomputing of how we're going to get beyond exascale right there was a set of articles that were published in a special issue of frontiers of information technology and electrical engineering this was sort of sponsored by the chinese uh Academy of Engineering, they, uh, the Chinese uh, 
uh, computer engineers wrote a lot of these uh, papers that they submitted. Um, and they're looking, again, at the topic we were just talking about, sort of this post-exascale topic or sort of the post-exascale from the initial uh, supercomputers that we've talked about at length, uh, the initial crop of exascale systems. Where do we go from there? I mean, there's sort of, uh, that's sort of baked in that we're going to have some exaflop capable supercomputers in the 2020 to 2023 timeframe. But what beyond that? How do we get beyond that, like, like Sterling's talking about? And a lot of these uh, papers, or all these papers, sort of were addressing that in various ways, including one that talked about how to get to Zetascale. What were the technologies and uh, approaches that would need that? Um, so I sort of reviewed that in the article on top500.org. I mean, they talked about a Zetascale system. They sort of had this initial sort of sketch of what that Zetascale system would look like. They talked about a, it would need to probably be somewhat on the 100 megawatts as far as power usage. Uh, they talked about the node performance of about 10, flop, 10 petaflops per node. They talked about communication bandwidth in the in the 1.6 terabits per second range and a few other things you know storage of one zettabyte um but part of the part of what i talked about there as well was sort of this concept of what would zettascale even mean or even even in the post exascale era once you got sort of beyond the middle of that exascale era when you started talking about 64 bit flops i mean some of that might sort of go away in the sense that uh, these physics simulations that sort of HPC is based on today is going to be so mixed in with analytics and especially machine learning that the whole concept of the way we think about supercomputing based on 64-bit floating point operations might no longer be valid. I mean, we're talking about Zetascale there, they were talking about Zetascale in the 2035 timeframe. That's over a decade and a half away. It's hard to imagine that we're going to be talking about Limpack and 64-bit uh, supercomputing in the same way there. So uh, as they talked about these things, it became a little bit of a contradiction when they, especially when they were talking about things like optical computing, quantum computing, biological computing, these other technologies that have no relation to sort of the supercomputing application space that we see today. So uh, it's sort of a it's sort of a contradictory sort of a, a paper when you when you start to break it down on on how the, how we're going to get there. By the time we get there, it doesn't seem like it's going to be where we where we think we're going to be in that time frame anymore. Well, an industry that changes as fast as this one does is hard to predict reliably on that kind of scale. It's true. And when we get out to that time frame, it, it really, we're, we're just getting to the point where exascale ought to be something that's a common product. Uh, the, the pace of change has slowed a little bit in the high end, as we've talked about with the, the pace of number one computers and such and, and how quickly we 
uh, the the line is moving in in this uh, post Moore's law era. Now there are a few things I would say about that. One is that I don't think sixty four bit precision goes away, but no. it becomes part of what we talk about in the context of mixed precision. And right now, when people are talking about mixed precision, they tend to mean like eight bit mixed with sixteen bit, right? And right. not even getting out to thirty two, let alone sixty four. But as AI becomes a, a mechanism for say computational steering, I think what you will see is a mix of all of the precisions from 8 out to 64. And who knows, maybe even you'll find uh, you know, quadruple precision or 128-bit precision in some areas that need to be extremely precise. What we'll let go of is having one level of precision for all types of computing. Um, what I will say is I think the demand will continue to be there. And I emphasized this in my market update presentations during the supercomputing conference, which is that we're not going to run out of science to do in the next five years or even in the next 20 years. There will be harder problems to solve, and we will want to bring supercomputing uh, power to bear on those tasks. So however we build them, I think there will be a market for them. We've been in this industry long enough to have seen a few different architectural approaches to how to build a supercomputer. And it might be that we see more evolution in what an architecture looks like. It might be that we see a complete revolution in uh, going to something that's that's non-von Neumann, whether it's this continuum computer architecture or something in quantum or something else. But however we build it, the demand will be there. Yeah, I I think I basically agree with you. I, I think my bigger point that I tried to sort of put out in that article, and I think that I I truly believe is that by the time we enter uh, the decade following this one, um, certainly there'll be uh, physics simulations. In fact, I think if you just counted up the number of cycles uh, expended towards that, there's probably gonna be a lot more uh, physics simulations that we see today but I truly believe it'll be a smaller proportion of what's going on uh, that's being executed by what we call supercomputers than there is now. I think supercomputers will be dominated by analytics and machine learning in a way that we can't quite imagine today. There'll still be these simulations out there, but it'll be like like we think about word processing, you know, that we thought about in the in the nineteen. 80s. I mean, we still have word processing today, but when we think about what goes on in the desktop, it's sort of a minor piece of what desktop systems are doing now. Right. It's it's still there. It's still a fundamental part of it. But most of desktop processing is doing all sorts of internet-related things, all sorts of email, all these other things, including now machine learning types of applications. So everything's going to be there. It's going to continue. There's going to be a lot more of it. But when you think about supercomputers in the 2035 era, I I would hazard a guess that it's going to be so much different than what we see now that this talk about Zeta scale just won't make any sense at all anymore. It'll it'll I don't know what we'll call it, but it'll be so different that uh, these old labels won't uh, won't won't have any bearing anymore. 
one thing that's clear is that we, we've got more specialization going on as the scope of types of applications is expanding. So is the scope of all of the different technologies. And we see general purpose CPUs, we see computational GPUs, we see flexible programmable FPGAs, we see targeted AI processors. And uh, you know these are all part of the environment now in terms of how they get combined. Meanwhile, also this week in HPC, Intel has essentially had uh, some analyst days and technology days to reveal some of its plans going forward. And Intel is running in a lot of these same directions all at once. The, uh, we talked about these novel architectures, but in the meantime, Intel is is figuring out how to build computers today that can tackle all of these different types of workloads. Right. I mean, that's been a big approach. Uh, central approach to the way Intel's gone. They're, they're talking about their AI processors. They started a GPU program, a discrete GPU program uh, last year. They're going forward with uh, obviously their, their CPU and their high-performance CPU uh, programs as well. Um, but sort of the most interesting thing they announced last week in a, in a set of announcements at their engineering day was this concept of sort of bringing all those disparate pieces together. And the way they, it looks like they're going to do that is with um, 3D packaging technology. And they've actually got a name for this technology called Foveros, if I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, they didn't go into a lot of the technical detail on how they're going to do it, but basically it's a way of, of using a, a, a base die, an interposer that has logic in it, and then stacking these chips, which they now call chiplets, um, of CPUs, GPUs, uh, other AI processors, and other types of logic devices on top in the way that's today only been done with uh, memory DRAM and this 3D memory. They want to do this with logic devices and sort of build another dimension to Moore's Law to keep that density going, and, and not just to keep the density going, but to build these complex, heterogeneous uh, devices or packages that can that can serve uh, their customer base. Yeah, I remember talking with you on a podcast a few years ago, Michael, when people started coming out with 3D memory, that we were talking about this as a possibility and, and as a way of talking about extending Moore's Law. And it, Moore's Law fundamentally is about density, and it's always been expressed in terms of square area. In this case, going 3D is a way to, uh, you know, get a jump on Moore's law. Yeah, I'm going to use this, uh, put more transistors in the same square area right. by layering more on top of it. And to me, I think that counts. I think yeah. you're finding a way to continue to increase the density and and put more computational elements into the same amount of space. I think this is an important technology going forward. Yeah, and I think the other thing that we have to keep in mind with Moore's Law, it's not just about density. It, it's fundamentally at the at the economic level, it's about price. So you, it's not just that you have more density in transistors, it, that this produces uh, price drops as you go forward. And that's something that they haven't really demonstrated with this uh, sort of initial technology. They haven't said these things are going to be cheaper. And I would hazard a guess that the first uh, – 3D devices they come out, which, which they're promising as early as next year for uh, some of their, I think for some of their mobile uh, markets are not going to be cheaper. They're going to be more expensive, just the way we see the 
the 3D memory technology is more expensive than this, the, the 2D DRAM that we see. But it, the idea going forward, I think, is to sort of make this uh, evolution in the way Moore's Law has been able to evolve the industry and to make it cheaper, more power efficient, and more power, and, and more performant as as it goes forward. It's just right now we're sort of at the beginning, maybe where we were with 2D technology 50 years ago when this all started. It looks like, though, Intel really does want to pursue this. They came out with a few details on what these initial chips are going to look like uh, without providing sort of a whole lot of the performance details or performance uh, metrics on, on how it's going to work. But uh, this chiplet technology, this 3D technology does seem like something that Intel is going to pursue and, and does fit very well with their heterogeneous uh, approach to computing. Yeah, and I want to be a little careful that I don't get into any areas that they describe for the analysts under NDA, but you know these are important stated directions. And one thing they did mention publicly that they certainly talked to us about is this idea that while they are going in all these different directions with specialized processor components, the intent is to do this now with a single open API. Intel's announced a one API initiative the idea is to have a single one API to rule them all, right? <laughs> to to have a single API for programming all of these different types of uh, of processing elements, not only for Intel processors, but to have that be an open API that can apply to anybody's processing elements. I I think that's a, a, a an ambitious but really fundamental uh, statement of strategy. Yeah, well, certainly the uh, the software stack to support these kind of packages and even even not these packages to support this kind of ecosystem that's becoming more and more heterogeneous is important. They, you know, this one API uh, project that you talked about, they have a they had a brief one paragraph announcement about it and the, with the promise that the project release uh, was going to come sometime next year. And certainly, uh, we'll see more details about that. But like you said, that is a very ambitious, uh, uh, effort. If you're going to bring together GPUs, CPUs, FPJs, AIs, and other accelerators into a single API, that's got to be a huge, <laughs> a huge set of APIs to, uh, to bring in, in under one and to have it, uh, standardized across, you know, the whole industry. I'm not sure how, how Intel intends to pull that off, but certain something to to follow uh, as they as they put it on the as as they release it next year. Yeah, well, we'll keep our eyes on it, Michael. All right, well, let's come back before the end of the year and get one more podcast to kind of do a year in review. But certainly, we had some interesting news still uh, here in December to to round out our year. Yeah, we certainly did. And yeah, I'm looking forward to do the year end review and to just wrap up the year in general. It's been a it's been a great year with a lot of big news in our in our space. All right. Well, Michael, thanks again. And thanks to you for tuning in. You've been listening to This Week in HPC, brought to you by Intersect 360 Research, actionable market intelligence for high performance computing. For more information, visit Intersect360.com. <laughs>